Conversations with Amazing Me, Amazing You. Hi, everybody. Greetings from the south coast of Ireland and welcome to the Amazing Me, Amazing You podcast. And today's gorgeous guest is the absolutely beautiful Michelle Moodis, who is in New Jersey. And Michelle is a therapist, a healer and a dating and relationship coach. And Michelle's IG account is That Millennial Therapist. And from the moment I came across Michelle's IG account, I fell in love with her because of her beautiful, compassionate, kind, non-judgmental way of sharing her incredible wisdom and experience about practicing self-love. And today, Michelle is going to share with us her own journey of self-love. So welcome, Michelle. Steph, thank you so much for having me. I'm so touched by that introduction. I'm like holding my heart chakra. <laughs> oh, it's all true. All true. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to have you here, Michelle. So do you want to begin with, I suppose, what would have prompted you to begin the self-love practice that you have so much as part of your life today? Yes, thank you so much. So my self-love journey, like a lot of people's self-love journeys, began after the ending of back-to-back relationships. I had found myself in back-to-back relationships since I was 15 all the way through, I believe I was 26, including an engagement. And after my last relationship, I really decided to make an intentional and conscious effort to date myself and really get to know myself without the influence of others. I realized I had codependent tendencies. And that's when my self-love journey really, truly began. And I began doing things and really exploring things for me and what resonated with me and things I like to do, again, without the influence of others and really be in tune with my feelings as well and really connect with my gut intuition that I felt like I had been ignoring for for all these years. So that's a bit how my self-love journey started. And I'm in a loving, healthy, beautiful relationship now. And it's only fostered my self-love journey even more. Oh, that's incredible. That's beautiful. And can I ask you, can I go back to when you said you had codependent tendencies? Yes. Because I actually didn't understand what that meant for a long time. So would you explain to me what that meant for you? Totally. So for me, codependency was a lot of the need to be needed. It was a lot of finding my self-worth and value in how other people perceived me and how other people treated me. And I think that's why I found myself in these back-to-back relationships because I found my self-worth and validation from my partner. And what that did was that put um, my self-worth outside of me rather than within me. And I felt like I was always chasing something and I was always trying to control other people's behaviors or expect a certain outcome. You know, if I self-sacrifice myself to do this thing for this person that I'm going to get that in return. And I really felt like I was a candle burning at both ends. 
in doing that. And it wasn't until I broke out of those codependent tendencies and really began to give and love and serve from a place within my heart while honoring my boundaries that Mm -hmm. I felt like I was really honoring myself. So for me, that's kind of what codependency was for me. What was it for you? I think actually that resonates hugely with me. It's about if I felt needed, then I felt valuable or I felt worthy because I had a purpose serving others and I was needed by others. Absolutely. And I feel like as a therapist, healer, and an empath, we're gravitated to that, right? It's I feel like it's almost in our nature to be like that. So boundaries are extra difficult at times, but they get easier with practice. Yes, yes. Boundaries are so huge. And do you know when I would have probably most felt the need to be needed was when I became a mom, Michelle. So when my kids were younger, I just jumped into, leapt into the parenting role, the mothering role. And then as they started getting older and needed me less, I realized how much I loved being needed by them. Yes, I would imagine that even if you did work on codependency before you had children, I would imagine that having children would just totally shatter all the work you did. Yeah, it was a real moment for me to realize, oh, I love being needed by them. And now they no longer need me. And there was a moment of, what am I now or who am I now if I'm not being needed by them? So yeah, I am familiar with that feeling. And coming back to dating with myself, I love when you say that, dates with myself. Yes. Yeah. And I had a a date this week, actually, that I just got on my bike after a self-care workshop and I cycled around Cork City. You know, Stuart Brown, he's a therapist and psychologist, I think. And his uh, definition of play is spending time without any purpose. Yes. And you know what Brene Brown calls that? An anxiety attack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Me too. I I relate to that so much. (laughs) Yes. That was definitely my experience. The first date I went on with myself. I thought it was such a strange notion and I felt quite embarrassed if anyone had asked me, what are you doing on your own? Just wandering around. Yeah, it was alien to me. And now I relish them. I love them. I couldn't agree more. I feel like all my life, I would see people at restaurants eating by themselves and want to invite them and and feel bad for them. Oh, look at this person eating by themselves. And now... I take myself out to eat all the time and I'm like, this is great. I'm having a me day. And, you know, it's so interesting that when I was younger, I couldn't see that, that maybe that person was relishing in their time alone out to eat with themselves or going on a bike ride by themselves or whatever people want to do with their time. Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing a self-care workshop this week, actually, one of the people that was attending had said she always feels conscious when she is out eating. And there's almost that feeling of, oh, what will they think of me? And personalizing it and not wanting to be judged so that she feels uncomfortable when she's out eating. And anyway, following the workshop, she said, okay, it's going to be my date time. Because I think we can get caught up into what are people going to think of me? Right. Absolutely. I relate to that so much. And, you know, when you put it into perspective, Steph, And who are these people? What does it matter, even if they were to judge? And and 
what does it matter what they think? And that's why I think self-love is so important when it comes from within you. And I think that's what the definition of self-love is, right? Everything that comes from within. Yes, yes. And to always be able to practice staying separate while loving ourselves. So staying separate from what other people may perceive or what other people may think of you or how they may judge you because we're only focusing on being loving and kind and compassionate with ourselves. Oh, that's fire. I love that. Yes. (laughs) And the beautiful person on the course this week, when she was leaving the workshop, she said, okay, so I'm going to go in and the next time I'm eating out alone, I'm going to just, she's going to just focus on her own sense of, you know, well-being And that I had said, you know, you might think that maybe in future people are thinking, I wish I was able to do that and have a bit of quiet time to myself because we never know what people are thinking. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And for people listening who may think that taking themselves out to eat sounds terrifying or scary, don't start there then. You could totally start with something that feels more comfortable to you, like maybe going for a walk in the park by yourself or maybe getting takeout by yourself and eating it at your kitchen table at home. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be this grand thing. You, You go for the thing that you're most anxious about to start. Yes, I love that, Michelle. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Even a cup of coffee. And I remember when I went back to college being asked by one of the lecturers, did I ever take time out just to sit alone and, you know, sit on a wall and watch the world going by? And I laughed because I thought I would never, ever do that because I definitely would have thought people would think she's lost her marbles anyway, that she's sitting on a wall in the middle of the day. And during that lecture, I went out at the break time and I spent quite a while just sitting on the wall and watching the world go by. And it was initially really uncomfortable And then I started relaxing into it. And yeah, it was fascinating to see how reluctant I think I was to sit on my own without any purpose and be fearful of what people might think if they were passing by. And it's a practice. It is a practice to remind ourselves that, you know, what we're doing, as long as it feels right for us and loving for us, and we're not harming others, that we need to just protect ourselves from worrying about judgment, that other people's judgment. Yes, I was going to ask you, so what was the sitting on the wall? What was the fear? Were you afraid that people were going to judge you? Yes, absolutely. I think growing up as well that, well, where I grew up in in Ireland, I think if someone was sitting on the wall, it was uh, seen as somebody had nothing better to do. You know, it was kind of maybe wasting your time so that if I wasn't productive and doing that I wasn't worthy or I wasn't deserving or I wasn't good enough. So instead, if I was being and just basically sitting quietly on a wall, it would have been seen as unproductive. Mm, That is so funny you say that, Steph. That is something I literally struggled with this morning when I, I found myself after a busy week, I had a bit of free time. Yeah. And I said to my partner, Andrew, like, I still struggle with having absolutely this free time that I could do anything with. And I find a tendency to want to have my free time be productive, either like I'm, I'm making something or creating something or reading something, learning. And he said, no, why don't you just, (laughs) he took my hand. We sat on the couch. I laid down and snuggled with him. He's like, just be here. Just 
just relax. Just oh. lay here. Just be present. It's okay. And he really reassured me that it was okay to just rest and not do anything. Oh. He's so wise. <laughs> He's so wise. He is. He's so wonderful. Oh, and I love that he said, just be present. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I am practicing more and more with my breath. You know, trying to be present to the moment because I can hear in my own head my thoughts running around and dashing around as we got back into the week of school and work last week. And I can already hear my thoughts, you know, ramping up. And so my practice now is, you know, with a few breaths, a few deep conscious breaths. So paying attention to my breath and saying, okay, come back into the present, into the present moment. And I find that very soothing. So I love that Andrew said too. And I feel like at times it can be really, especially now between the pandemic and going back to school and all this heightened anxiety around that, especially here in the United States where, you know, there's so many different decisions being made around schools. It's so important to just take a step back and take a deep breath and just be here. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to practice, but it is worth practicing. I find for myself that the more often I practice it, the more natural it becomes for me. Yes, I completely agree with that as well. Yeah. And do you know, actually, recently I was amazed I was asleep. And it was now a few months ago during the pandemic when it was really at a height, a heightened, you know, fear for me. And I was doing my breath and my, but I kept doing my breathing during the day. And so I had some reminders that if I was putting on the kettle, I'd do some breaths. If I was going out to the car, I'd breathe some breaths, you know, conscious breaths. And during a night, when I had a nightmare, which I hadn't had in a long, long time, I woke up with a fright. And then the next thing I realized, my body was relaxing and it woke me. And I thought, what, what is happening? What's, what's happening in my body? And I was doing my deep belly breathing. Mm. I never knew that if you practiced that much, that was my experience. I was practicing so much that it even came in my sleep during a nightmare. I love that. And you know what? By practicing, you create those new neural pathways in your brain. So you just Mm -hmm. automatically, your central nervous system just knows what to do and responds in that way. That's amazing. That's really incredible. And I love, Steph, that you incorporated the breathing in these seemingly mundane activities, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have incorporated them into the the, the moments that used to irritate me, actually. So getting out of my park where we live can be tricky at times because the traffic might be heavy. And so I used to sit at the edge of the park thinking, ah, come on, come on, come on, traffic, traffic, traffic. And now is one of my reminders when I get to the edge of the park to take a few breaths. I love that. I love that so much. It's these little moments that really don't take too much time, just a couple seconds, that can really impact the way we live and think and feel. Yeah, absolutely. And Michelle, do you have a daily self-loving or self-care practice now that you didn't have before or one that you have had for years? Yes, one that I've had for years. It's actually weekly. It's called Michelle Day. Since I started working, I made a commitment to not work on Fridays and really have a whole day to myself to do whatever I want to do without judgment. And it's really great 
And it was an awesome way to really get to know myself as well, especially when I was single, because I found I was kind of catering my time and day to my partner or other people. But now, you know, I really take that time for me and do whatever I feel called to do. But Uh I also do breath work daily. And I also use something called EFT tapping, emotional freedom technique, where by tapping on different meridian points on our face and our body while thinking of distressful things, it actually soothes the part of the brain called the amygdala. That's where our fight or flight response is stored. And by activating these points, it soothes that part of the brain So we can think of the distress without having the distressing response. And kind of like your breathwork routine, Steph, over time, things don't become as activating as they once were. Mm, I have never tried the EFT. Is it emotional freedom technique? Yes, EFT tapping. Absolutely. It falls under the umbrella of energy psychology. And is that something you practice Every day or throughout the day or like, do you have to have a set time to do it? No, I actually, I do it whenever just I'm feeling triggered or in a frenzy. You know, sometimes my days can get so busy and it takes a minute, less than a minute to just, you know, do a round of tapping. And it's like hitting the reset button on a video game. (laughs) Wow. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of use it as, uh, as needed, but I find myself using it every day. So you have your weekly Michelle day, your regular ongoing breathwork, and your regular ongoing EFT. Yes, absolutely. And I also make time to journal as well. Oh, yeah. I love the journaling. Me too. So much comes up with it, right? Yes, yes. Do you have a structure that you use or a particular question that you use to prompt yourself each morning or how do you go about it? So usually I just write when I feel called to write. So it's not every day, though every day I do try to name one thing I feel thankful for. Gratitude, I feel, is one of the best ways and easiest ways to boost our mood, right? Yes, absolutely. And raise our vibration. But I do write one thing I'm thankful for and other times that'll just take me off. Other times I do use prompts depending, but a lot of times I just find myself in the moment. If I feel like I need a sounding board, I'll be my own sounding board through journaling. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I try to journal each morning only because I think I like the pattern or the routine for me. I love that. Yeah. I used to leap out of bed and just jump into the day. And now I'd try to have a few things that I do in the morning. And one is the journaling, because I feel no matter what comes my way, then during the day, I've had a little of time to self-reflect and almost like a spritzer, you know, to detangle all my thoughts and all my the concerns that might be bubbling away just below the surface. And the journaling kind of just allows me to release them. I love that. And you know, people think that it takes time to journal. It takes less than two minutes at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At times. Now, last weekend, I had something on my mind that I needed to figure out and understand. And I think I started and maybe seven pages later, I had finally found the answer. So sometimes it does take me a while. 
Absolutely. Case by case. Yes, yes, yes. And day by day. Yes, that as well. And the gratitude one also, Michelle, I would not have ever thought of the gratitude in the mornings or even, even in the evenings. I would have never thought of gratitude until quite recent years. And I find it transformative because no matter what really challenging situation has come up in either a relationship or in work or whatever, if I can just remind myself of what I'm grateful for, and it might be in that moment, my breath, Mm. it just grounds me. And I think, of course, I'm grateful for my breath. Thank goodness I am breathing and I am well, and I'm here in this moment. And it brings me into the present moment as well. I love that so much. I find it really helpful as well. And actually I have these to-do lists that I found on Amazon. And one of the big reasons I purchased it is because at the top, it says something I'm thankful for today is, and every day I write something down there. And it's on my to-do list. So it's at the top. So when I'm feeling in a frenzy, I can always reference it. And then in the bottom corner, at the end of the day, it gives you space to write three things you accomplished that day that you're feeling good about. Mm, I really like that. Yes, me too. Me too. So it's nice if if you have a to-do list, to write what you're thankful for at the top of it so you can be reminded of gratitude. Yes. And then the three things you've accomplished. Yes. I feel like that's so important. We could go through the day feeling like we didn't do much or we weren't productive. But then when we actually take the time to stop and think about it, realizing how much we did do, or even if it was rest, how productive rest can be. I think that's something mm. I'm I'm still struggling with. <laughs> yeah. That rest and play are productive. Yes, yes, yeah. Me too. I, when I went back to do the relationship studies, and our kids were still very, very young at the time, and I remember being asked, you know, do I do I rest? And I actually thought it was quite insulting <laughs> <laughs> because I prided myself in busy. Yes, that was a time definitely when my self worth was caught up in doing. And so I found it quite insulting to be asked, do you rest? My response was, you know, shock. I went, what? Of course I don't. You know, I'm busy. I'm busy. That's, that was my badge of honor. So that was the start of me actually pausing and giving myself even two, three minutes just to, just to sit down. And it was a practice, but it took a while to practice because it was such an alien idea to me to rest. Oh my goodness, I couldn't agree more with that, especially I'm first generation on my dad's side. So coming from that immigrant mentality of work hard means to work a lot instead of working smarter, not harder. It took me some time to really break through those beliefs that rest is equally as important because creativity is born from rest and play. And that you can work hard without having to work a lot. They're not synonymous. Absolutely. I love that quote as well, Michelle. Creativity is born from rest and play. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. It is so true. I didn't believe it for years. Me either. And again, I still have difficulty (laughs) with it. It's something, you know, I still struggle with, but... Definitely to remind myself that rest and play are so important and you're more productive with your time when you are working, when you do make time for rest and play. 
Absolutely, yeah. And even the word creativity, I would have had a huge misunderstanding of what creativity meant growing up because I would have thought the creative people were the, say, an artist or a musician. You know, that they were creative. And I would have boxed myself into a little tiny corner of somebody who wasn't creative. And then when I discovered The Artist's Way, that fantastic book that we both love. It's incredible. It's incredible. And then I discovered, oh my goodness, I am creative. And we are all creative. We truly are. Creativity doesn't have to be like you said. I love that so much. It doesn't have to be that you're a musician or you you paint. It yeah. could be just incorporated into your work, maybe a different way of doing things or a different way of seeing things. That's different from the way you're used to doing things that maybe lights yes. you up more yes yeah 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 and where would you see your creativity coming out actually Michelle I've been seeing my creativity come out a lot with my work with my clients I really like helping people in in creative ways which is what kind of led me to coaching I feel like therapy as much as I love therapy it can sometimes be a bit of a box with stringent rules. So I love being able to put groups together and I love helping people outside, you know, having sessions in nature instead of in an office. I love, you know, thinking outside the box with certain things and and bringing my casual self instead of a, a professional self. And Those are all ways I feel like I can be creative, even, you know, showing up in the way I dress. Yes, um, yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Not having to be in a professional box. Yes. Oh, I I love that you have your sessions, your coaching sessions in in nature. Yes, I try to do that when I can, when the weather is nice. Absolutely. It makes all the difference or, or moving, like going for a walk on the boardwalk. It really makes all the difference. Oh, I love it. Makes it feel like more of a conversation than yes. two people sitting in a in a boxed room. Yes, and more it's more authentic, isn't it? When we can bring our whole self to a conversation. I totally agree. I yeah. totally, totally agree. And I really love the transparency that coaching brings as well, where I can share a bit of my story and use my story to help other people. Yes where therapy has been much of a a mirror where we can't reveal too much about ourselves. But I really believe that connection comes from being vulnerable with another human. And that Mm. goes two ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I would feel so strongly that like that also, because I remember somebody asking me a while back, during my one-to-one session one time and somebody said it must be so great to have it all together and I said and that's when I thought oh (laughs) I need to share a lot more of myself because (laughs) there is something about you know the professional mask of you know not sharing too much of your own vulnerability but the I think that I think the healing and the relationships and the connections are when we share when we share what our own lives are really like also and that I'm equally struggling with challenges in relationships or conflict at home or conflict at work, challenges of worry or doubt or fear that I have all those challenges too. And I think that's where the connections come. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it's so funny you bring that up, Steph, because I had a client 
this week who said that, you know, she's just feeling really down about the pandemic and feeling frustrated that we can't go anywhere. And she said she was feeling alone in that. And she straight up asked me, she said, what have you been doing during the pandemic? I said, and this was in my therapy role. And I was like, do you really want to know? And she said, yeah, what have you been doing? And I said, not much of anything. (laughs) I, I go out when I can in a safe way and I take walks and whatever, but You know, one of my passions is traveling and I can't do that anymore and I'm frustrated. And she goes, wow, I feel so much better Uh, just from knowing that she wasn't alone in a struggle. She felt so much better. I think there's a lot of healing power in that. Oh, I think so too. Uh, Absolutely. And you know, Michelle, I really did the first time I saw your IG page, that millennial therapist, I think that's what just resonates like your it shines out from your page is your compassion and your kindness and that there is zero judgment so I I love that you have actually moved into that dating and relationship coaching role because I you must be incredible at it ah thank you so much I'm so touched and honored but yes that role really does resonate with me so Mm. much just because I can be more transparent and provide this non-judgmental, empathetic um, space for people and really Mm. show up as an imperfect human myself. I really love that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that it shows. Yes, you are so authentic and so relatable. I think that's like, it's incredibly healing and supportive to be able to see that in you. So it's beautiful. Thank you so much. And that's why I want to connect with other millennial therapists as well, because I feel like this profession, the, the therapy world, yeah, we're judged by our age, where yeah. age is equated with experience. And I especially got that when I looked younger, <laughs> not that long yeah. ago, but people don't yeah. say the, the, the age comments as much anymore. So I guess I aged a bit. <laughs> <laughs> But when I when I first started in the field, when I was 23, you know, I got yes. side eyes from new clients like, you look like you're my daughter's age. And I just didn't know what to say. And they thought maybe I couldn't help them. And I really had to just show up as much yes. as I could for them and show them that just because I'm young doesn't mean I can't help you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And I feel like a lot of other young healers and therapists kind of have a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not so young any longer. (laughs) I remember that actually when I was younger, that arriving in to do a particular project and yeah, people would be judging immediately just based on your age rather than I think if you have passion for something, that's going to shine out anyway. So it's regardless of your age, isn't it? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Steph. And you know what? We all have to go through it, right? We're all young professionals at some point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But when we're speaking from our heart, I think that's when we we connect and when when we can build relationships. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And Michelle, you know, in your work, so if you're a dating and relationship coach with young people, are there key points that you'd advise or recommend to people, you know, or suggest to them to start building more loving relationships? Yes. So my first one is exactly what we're talking about today is self-love and building a relationship with yourself. I Mm. really believe that 
the relationship you have with yourself extends to all other relationships you have in your life. And I'm not just talking romantic. It's the relationships you have with your children and your friends and your job and your colleagues, person at the grocery store, right? It it extends outward everywhere. And that includes having strong boundaries with yourself. Yes. Once you have strong boundaries with yourself, then you'll have strong boundaries with other people, especially in the dating world. Yes. Having non-negotiables, which are things that you know are not going to work for you in a compatible partnership. That could be anything like maybe, I don't know, smoking cigarettes or you don't want to date someone who isn't open to traveling. Just things that you know that are compatible with you or not going to be compatible with you. That's that's a boundary with yourself. Yes, I like that. Yeah. So I really, I recommend that in, um, you know, as a fundamental to dating in the dating world, writing down what your non-negotiables are, writing down the qualities that you want in a person. And I'm not saying you know, outward things like they have to have brown hair and work in finance, you know, be open to different types of people from different walks of life. I'm not sitting here saying be shallow, but what I am saying is hold true to your truth and what you feel a partner will be compatible with you, those qualities. If you see in the beginning that they're not there doesn't mean that that person's a bad person. It just means that they're not compatible with you. And we're not compatible with all 7 billion people in the world. Uh, Yeah. If you're saying the non-negotiables, are they the things that either light up your spirit or the things that dampen your spirit? If they're not available, that's non-negotiable. Right. So the the non-negotiables would probably be the things that dampen your spirit. So things that you know from your past partners that didn't work out, okay, it didn't work out with this person because they didn't have emotional awareness. So I'm no longer going to date people who don't have emotional awareness because I know I've already been down that road and it doesn't work for me. Or Mm. I dated someone who smoked. That didn't work out for me. So no shame to people who smoke, but I know Smoking isn't something that's going to work for me. I already tried it. It didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. A lot of times we, we compromise on our non-negotiables, going back to codependency, just to feel wanted or loved or secure in a relationship. And over time, that can crumble. Yeah. When the yes. spark wears off. Michelle, I love what you're saying there about boundaries with self, because I think so often when I'm at workshops, there's a huge emphasis on boundaries with others so that we want to make sure that we feel respected and loved and honored by the behaviors and actions of others. So I absolutely love when your starting point with your clients is to have the boundaries with yourself around what are your values and your needs so that you're stating very clearly these are the needs that I need met from the very beginning. Absolutely. And I feel like that's such a key part of dating that that people Mm. miss. They feel like if I have these things, then that means I'm calling the other person a bad person if it doesn't work out because they don't meet these things. Or um, I'm being too picky. And really, it's, again, 
you already know that these things aren't going to work because you've been there, right? Yes. And yes. by holding this boundary with yourself, it therefore is extending out to other people. And again, we're not meant to be compatible with all 7 billion people in the world. So if you go on a date with someone, dates, I say multiple dates, it it takes a couple dates to really get to know someone, and you're finding that you're just on two different pages with values and things that are important to you. Yes. It's okay to end it there. Yes. It's not just for you. It's for them too, because you don't want to change people. Yeah. If that's what that person values, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's where they're at and we're all different. Uh, that is so powerful because then we're not judging the person that we have gone on a few dates with or that we're in a relationship with. We're just saying that this isn't compatible with my needs and my values. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And I feel like, again, that's kind of a piece that we get tripped up with dating that we feel like we have to mm-hmm. be able to make it work with people. And you want to be able to make it work with someone who's compatible with you. Yes. It makes things a lot easier, especially yes. when the more difficult things come in, like raising children, if you want children, or even raising dogs. <laughs> yes. Running a yes, household yes. together and finances and things of that nature. Yes. And I think as well, if we have created a loving boundary around our needs, we're then not depending on other people to meet our needs because we're in a really solid loving place of ourselves oh yes I love that so so much because your partner isn't going to always be emotionally available for you Mm -hmm. so that's why I feel that that time to spend by yourself and really know yourself and know what you need when you're feeling certain ways is so important yes And when you say there about your partner may not be available emotionally, I think even ourselves, like sometimes I don't want to be available for my own emotions. I want to think I do not want to go there. I do not want to journal. I don't want to explore them. And it's so powerful, though, to gift ourselves the time to sit in quietness and just reflect on how we are feeling and recognizing that all our feelings make sense. There is wisdom in every single one of our feelings. And we are 100% responsible for meeting our needs. I love that so much. And I love the way you talk about feelings, Steph. I feel like mm-hmm. you make it so palatable and understandable <laughs> and simple. You're, that's, you're just so brilliant with that. Thanks, Michelle. I, that's after my own many, many years of struggling with feelings. And really, I had them compartmentalized into either good or bad. So there were lots of feelings that I just dampened and ignored or modified. So it's, yeah, it's been a long journey and I'm still on that journey. So it's still, still feelings crop up for me and they'll pop up and I realize, oh my goodness, I'm trying to diminish that or modify it again. So it's a lifelong practice, but thank you. (laughs) I love it. Totally. Likewise. I really understand that. And even I have to catch myself when sometimes I say negative emotion and I have to correct it and say uncomfortable emotion because there are no negative or positive emotions. Just some are much more comfortable and more uncomfortable than others, right? Yes, yes. They're actually the words I came to also, you know, that comfortable or uncomfortable because they're Mm -hmm. not good or bad. Yeah. And they're not 
awful. That was used to be my little catchphrase. Oh, that's an awful feeling. That's what I'd be talking about myself and others that I would have been thinking, oh my goodness, that's an awful feeling to have either about someone else or about myself. And actually feelings always make sense. And there are friends, they're showing up for us. You know, I especially felt that way about anger. Me too. (laughs) So felt that way about anger, that it was such an awful feeling. And if someone got angry, that was awful and terrible. And why are they getting angry? And I had to learn that it was just the way they were expressing anger. Yes. And I was similarly now, but on the other side of the coin, I was afraid to express anger myself. And I've shared that in an earlier podcast. And at the time, I had anger and aggression confused as the one thing. Mm. And so if I felt anger coming up, I knew that aggression was bad. So I had labeled anger as bad. But actually, anger is another feeling that's coming up for us or for someone else and calling myself or someone else to take action for ourselves. So it's only when we act against someone and it's an action against another, I think that's the aggression. But anger is a very powerful and very important emotion. I love the way you just described that stuff. That's incredible. (laughs) That resonates so much. Yeah, that was a hard one for me to learn as well. And to unlearn, I suppose, because I had grown up learning that anger and believing in myself, convincing myself anger is bad. So it took a long time to unlearn that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And another one too that's coming to mind is loneliness. (laughs) Having the identity of being lonely just because we're having lonely feelings. Yes. Yeah. Really separating the, the feeling of loneliness from the identity of I'm a lonely person. Yes. Mm. And I feel like a lot of single people can go through that. Can you explain that to me again? That if you're feeling a loneliness that you don't identify that you are alone. A lonely person. Ah. That you don't have your identity in being lonely. That loneliness is a feeling. Mm. It's not a state of, of who you are as a person. It's a feeling that comes and goes. So you aren't lonely, you are feeling lonely, putting more separation between yourself as a person and the feeling of loneliness. Just like, you know, we could translate Mm -hmm. that to anger. That person is feeling anger and expressing anger through aggression. They aren't an angry person. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, thank you. And only recently I was sharing with a client that I believe depression similarly because they were feeling depressed and they were feeling they're a depressed person. Ah, yes, exactly. So it's similar that I was saying, well, you're feeling the depression and that's that feeling is, even though it feels so uncomfortable, it's your friend because it's calling you to take action. Yes, exactly. Ah, I love that. And, you know, I said before that people who are single can go through that loneliness, but I actually know plenty of people in relationships who feel more lonely in their relationships than they do being single and alone. So, yes, it can really happen in, in any state. But again, kind of putting emphasis on the feeling and not Mm -hmm. I am this feeling. 
And you know, when you say that, that reminds me, Michelle, I remember many, many years ago when I was newly married and I had met another gorgeous woman who was a single parent. And she had said at the time that when she was in a relationship, that it was far lonelier for her and that she found that she would have had expectations and her expectations constantly weren't met. So she found it far more challenging and alone when she was in a relationship that wasn't, it wasn't a compatible and equally loving relationship and that she felt far more empowered as a single parent where she no longer felt alone or lonely. Wow. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Mm. It's so true. It's so, so true. Yeah. I remember at the time, it took me a while to think about it because I thought, surely if you're in a relationship, you have company, but it wasn't the company at all. It was that the compatibility. That's what was missing for them. Yes, yes. Toward the end of one of my relationships, I felt so alone, so, so lonely because I just wasn't connecting to my partner anymore. And I I felt like by not connecting with him, I was also disconnecting with me. Oh, yes. That's so powerful because that's what does happen, isn't it? I think maybe does the disconnection come from ourselves first? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I, I think when the relationship is making us break up with ourselves. Mm. Let's connect with ourselves. I, I think that's a, a first sign. Yeah, that's a beautiful and powerful way of putting it. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Oh, Michelle, I think we could talk all day. I think we could too, but Steph. <laughs> I absolutely have loved our conversation. Your heart sings out to me. You are a beautiful, beautiful soul. And you have so much wisdom and experience and such huge, deep compassion, Michelle. I can feel it across the miles. You are a beautiful soul. Oh, and thank you so, so much for being my guest today. It's been really special. Totally. Likewise. Thank you so, so much for having me and having this incredible conversation with me and letting your authenticity shine through. It's been incredible. Oh, beautiful. And I am sure your story and your experiences and wise words will inspire many listeners. Thank you, Michelle. (laughs) 